Well, this is the, the culmination, let's say, of Habakkuk's journey. He found in, in chapter 2 that he needed to live by faith. Uh, do you remember that it said in 2.4? Uh, the righteous will live by his faith. And Habakkuk has taken to heart that he needs to live by faith. And when everything fails, he is now seeking to trust in God. Even when circumstances around him crumble and fall, uh, he is trying to live by faith. And he has seen that living by faith in God's promises is the right thing to do. He's reminded himself of times in the past when and people did that and put their faith in God and how God rescued and redeemed them. And so he's determined now to live by faith, to trust in God. And yet, as we discussed that at the beginning, what does a man of faith look like? That's the question that we need to kind of try and seek to answer from these verses, I think. What does it actually look like to live by faith? What does it look like for Habakkuk to live by faith? And what does it feel like to live by faith? Well, the first thing I think we see in these, in the end of this, in these verses at the end, in verse, from verse 16 on, is that Habakkuk had a waiting faith, or a patient faith. And you see it in the second half of verse 16. And Habakkuk says, Yet I will wait patiently. Yet I will wait patiently. Now the faith that Habakkuk has is patient, is waiting. Now it's a great difference, isn't it, from the beginning of the book. Do you remember how Habakkuk started the book? Do you remember what it was like then? Well, turn, turn back a page and read again from chapter 1 and verse 2. This is what Habakkuk was like at the beginning. He said, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. You read that and you realise, don't you, that Habakkuk at the beginning of the book was far from patient. Far from patiently trusting in God. Now he was crying out, he was perplexed, he was disturbed. And you can imagine he was a man who had absolutely no peace as he looked around him. And yet by the end of the book he's waiting patiently. Yet I will wait patiently, he says. He's got a patient faith. He's waiting patiently for God. And so what's he learnt as he's gone through this time? What's he understood now that he didn't understand at the beginning of the book? Well, remember what he's he's seen through the book. He's understood, first of all, that God's not inactive. God's always active. We saw that from chapter 1. God says, look at the nations, be utterly amazed, for I am doing something in your days. That God was working, and so Habakkuk realised that God is working, and sometimes we can't understand God's action in the minutiae of what we do, and yet God is active. And more than that, God was bringing about his purposes in the world. Now you see that in chapter 2, that God's saying, this is all to bring about his purpose, that ultimately, in the end, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so although Habakkuk can't quite understand how this is happening, he can trust God that God is doing those things. And that God will ultimately judge the invading army and those, uh, those Babylonians, the Chaldeans, who were uh, vicious people. God will ultimately do that. And so he can be patient because he knows what God says he will do. In chapter 3, he outlines things that God has done in the past so that he knows that God has acted in the past and he can trust him. 
Which is why when he gets to verse 16 he says that he will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Now this because I've been reading Habakkuk now for over these number of weeks. Um, I've, I've always misread this verse in verse, the end of verse 16. I thought what Habakkuk was saying here was that he was going to wait patiently for the calamity to come on him as the nation invading comes to, onto him. But he's not saying that. You see what he's saying? Yet I will wait patiently for the days of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Habakkuk's waiting for the nation to be taken away, to be judged for the evil that they've done. He's waiting for a time in the future when God will take away the evil that has come on the land. Now God has said in chapter 2 that he'll remove the enemy. And so Habakkuk is taking God at his word and waiting patiently for that time to come. Do you know, as we trust in the gospel, the gospel promises us great things. It promises us that God will come back, that Jesus will come back. And when Jesus comes back, that everything will be made right. Everything will be made okay. But I wonder, do you believe God? Do you take God at his word when he says, Jesus is coming back and everything will be made right? Do you believe God when he promises that all suffering will be taken away and that he will fully bless us at that time? Now we have sins forgiven now, yet we wait for the full realisation of what that will be like when we have uh, new bodies and we are made right and we are made perfect and we live in a world that has no more sin or suffering in it. Do you trust God when he says that? You see, Habakkuk, by the end of, the cha- of, of Habakkuk, he's now trusting God as words. He's taking God at his word. God has said this and so I will wait patiently for it to happen. Do you know, so as we believe in the gospel, Jesus says he's going to come again. Do you believe him? Jesus says that he will take away all suffering and pain and sadness in the future. Do you believe him? Jesus says he has an inheritance for us that can never spoil, perish or fade. Do you believe him? Jesus says in all of these different ways, trust me, believe me, take me at my word. And if you consider God's work in the world, you can see there's an abundance of evidence which confirms it is right to trust in him. That's what Habakkuk laid out before us last week and at the beginning of chapter 3. And yet we've got even more than that as we look at the cross. The cross in which all of God's promises are made, yes. But will you trust him? Because if you trust him, you'll wait patiently. That he has plans to prosper you. And although they may be really hard... You can trust him. And the point is, not that trusting God is just kind of like having a a stiff upper lip, an ability to kind of keep on walking when everything's really hard and pretend it's not really that hard after all. So they're kind of walking on coals as if they weren't really hot at all. It's not that kind of unreality. No, you have a patience in God even in the midst of hard times. You see the reality, you feel the reality of pain and suffering, and yet you're still patient. You can, did you see how, chapter, how verse 16 began? And I'm not sure if there's a greater description of somebody just falling apart. You see what he says? Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. You see, Habakkuk knows what's going to happen. 
that it's going to be tough, it's going to be really painful. And he is he's physically moved in that. He's at physical collapse. And yet he still trusts God. You know, one of the hardest things that I ever had to witness was when I was at, at Moore College. A, a terrible time. And it wasn't even me that actually had to face the time. Uh, some of some friends of ours weren't, weren't really close friends. Um, but they lost their, their first son at 41 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, the child died then. And listen to these words written by Cameron, the, the child's mum, um, in a blog after. She said, I don't want this to be real. I desperately don't want this to be real. I want Cameron alive, not dead. I want him to be here, not gone. I cried so much and so hard tonight. Rick had to keep holding me up in the shower. I felt like I wanted to collapse in a heap. This grief was just so intense. My cries were so loud, I was sure our neighbours below and above us would hear us. That's the kind of emotion that Habakkuk's expressing in verse 16. A few days earlier, Rhonda, who wrote those words, wrote, wrote this. She said, I miss Cameron so much. Rick misses him too. We love our little boy and wish desperately that he was here with us. How I desperately want to touch his little hands and feet once more. I cried tonight before bed and cried last night in bed. Even though it's been more than three months now, our lamentations continue Our mourning continues, as does our grief, pain and sadness. It is simply a part of us now. Will we be purely happy again? Rick and I sometimes wonder about this. It seems inconceivable that we will ever not be sad about Cameron. And yet I'm starting to truly accept that this is God's plan for us. I'm starting to accept the reality that he has laid out before us instead of constantly thinking how our lives should be different how there should be three of us, how we should be looking after camera, etc. I'm slowly realising and coming to terms with the fact that our lives right now are exactly as it should be. This is what God has ordained for us, Cameron's conception, Cameron's death, our mourning, our sadness, our grief. Lord, please comfort us. We are so sad and so grieved. Please continue to sustain us as you have been doing. We miss Cameron but rejoice that he is with you. Can you you feel the pain that Rhonda felt at that time and yet the trust that she has that God is good in that? That she's got a patient faith. A faith that doesn't try and pretend the hard times are there. The hard times really are there. And yet she knows the promises that God has made and she trusts in God. You see, sometimes we, I think we come to church and we think that you have to come and be sorted when you get there. That you can't have pain and suffering and, 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 and sadness in your life and you couldn't express that at church of all places. And yet you see what Habakkuk was saying here. He was being patiently waiting for God and yet he was at the point of physical collapse. And let's be real when we come to church, when we meet with our Christian friends. Having faith is not like the, uh, the picture of a, an English gentleman with a stiff upper lip who nothing seems to move or affect them. Now let's be real in our faith. Well, Habakkuk has a waiting faith. But Habakkuk also, you see, has a, a rejoicing faith. And so look at verse 17 and 18. Let's start at verse 18 where he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour. 
So Habakkuk's faith is rejoicing in God. He's joyful in his Saviour. Now we understand joyful, don't you? We, he can sing praise to God. He can sing of the great themes of salvation to God. He can give God glory for all that he has done for him. He can find great delight in considering the God of his salvation. But look when he is being joyful. And we've seen this a number of times already as we've looked at Habakkuk. But look, look at the time when he is joyful. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. It's quite staggering really, isn't it? In the same way that he'll be patient in great distress, so he'll be joyful when his own well-being is threatened. Joyful when all material blessings are taken away from him. And so he can have faith even when his existence is threatened. This is how one commentator describes these these three verses. He says, The psalmist realises that his faith can be safely put in Yahweh's grace, and God's grace, not only in matters of national survival, but of personal well-being and even existence. Habakkuk is putting his faith in God and he is joyful. Now why can he do that? Well see, what he's, see who he says he is joyful in. Do you see it in verse 18? Who's he being joyful in? He says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Now Habakkuk's learned that the righteous will live by faith. He knows that he has life in God by living by faith. He knows he deserves nothing from God's hand. Indeed, he knows that he really should face the wrath of God. Now remember what he said in chapter 2 of verse of chapter 3? In verse 2, sorry? Right at the end of verse 2 of chapter 3. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. As Habakkuk has listened to what God has said, he realises he deserves nothing from God's hand. And so he asks God to remember mercy. It's what the cross proclaims to us, really, isn't it? That God will remember mercy because Christ died for us to take our punishment. The cross proclaims that although you deserve the wrath of God, you can receive mercy. So how does that help us to think about suffering and having faith in times of suffering when everything's taken away? Well, if we face great suffering in this world, they're nothing compared to what we deserve. Now, listen to these words from Jonathan Edwards. He says, How far less are the greatest afflictions that we meet in this world than we have deserved? The greatest outward troubles and calamities that we meet with must needs appear very little things to the misery which we have deserved. A man may weep with very great losses, his cattle may die, his corn may be blasted, his barn may be burnt down, and all the goods consumed and he may be brought from a comfortable living to a poor, low, stricken state. This is very hard to bear. But alas, how little reason have such to complain if they do but consider how little this is compared with that eternal destruction that we have been informed of. 
You see, when you realise what you deserve, then you realise that you've got great things to be joyful in. And that we've been given faith by God. We've been given life by God. We've been given forgiveness of sins. We've been given a hope of eternal life from God. Salvation from the judgment of God. And so, he, so Habakkuk here could be joyful in God, his Saviour. We've been saved by God and he's given us so much that we can be joyful in that, even though being sad at everything that's been taken away. You know, there was a, a, a hymn writer called um, Horatio Spafford, um, and he understood this, um, this, this, this truth. Um, Spafford lost his four daughters on a, uh, on a boat trip across the Atlantic, and he was on, they were on different boats. Uh, and the boat that his four daughters were on collided with another boat, and they all died. But Spafford, in the midst of that pain and suffering, could write these words. He wrote the hymn, It is Well With My Soul. And one of the verses says this, My sin, O the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. You see, Spafford realised that he had sins forgiven at the cross and so he could trust God and he could praise God for that, even though everything in his life had been taken away. So the, the, the same as, blessed be your name, you give and take away. Yet I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But despite the severe suffering that Spafford faced, how much he experienced in that loss, he understood how much salvation meant, how much it meant to have sins forgiven. He could say, although my family be destroyed by death, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord, I'll be joyful in God my Saviour. I wonder though, do you praise your salvation as highly as, as, as that? Do you prize it as highly as Spafford did? To realise that even though everything is taken away, the salvation that you have received is so great that you can rejoice in God, be joyful in him. And I wonder what your those are, though Habakkuk says, though the fig tree and though the olive crops and though there are no sheep. What are, what are your those? Though I fail my exams and drop out of uni, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Though I lose the use of my legs and I cannot play hockey again, rugby again, football again, tennis again, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Though my mum and dad die in a car crash and my sister is severely injured, yet I will rejoice in God my Saviour and be joyful. Or look into the future, will it be, though I never find a husband or a wife and have to live as a single person, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Though I find out that I can't have children and I have to face a childless marriage, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Though I never seem to be able to get the job which is right for me, and I'm losing my self-worth, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Now I could go on and on. What are your those? Now you may never have suffered greatly at the moment. Although one person said, if you live long enough in this world, you will come across suffering yourself. But see, though, that your sin is forgiven. 
that God promises that everything will be made right in the end and rejoice in that. The question again though is, will you trust God? Now will you take God at his word that the righteous will live by faith? Now will you trust God when he says your sins are forgiven? Will you trust God? He has shown how much he loves you on the cross. There he suffered the wrath and the agony of the, the judgment which was ours. And he's faced greater suffering than you will ever face. Do you believe him when he says that? Do you believe him when he says that your sins deserved hell and yet I took that punishment for you so that you could be made right and have life? So that you can have the hope of eternal life? That you can have that inheritance that will never spoil, perish or fade? Do you believe him? Maybe if you flip it around I could ask you what, what if it was taken away from you would mean that you would say I can't praise God now if he takes that from me. What do you prize so highly that your salvation is less than that? What what is it? I don't know. The control that you have of your life, your health, your education, your guitar, what is it? What is it, the thing that you prize so highly if it was taken away, you would say, I can't praise God now. Habakkuk says, even when everything's taken away, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Will you trust what he has done for you in the cross? Will you prize that above everything so that everything is taken away, you can still rejoice in what he has done there, that that which can never be taken away from you? You might wonder how on earth you could do that. We'll see what Habakkuk says in verse 19 as we draw to a close. Verse 19 says, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. How can you do it? Well, God gives you strength. The sovereign Lord is Habakkuk's strength. The sovereign Lord who has promised things to Habakkuk. You see, even when life is precarious, God gives strength. That's the, that's the point of these deer. Um, it could be the idea of kind of a mountain goat almost, or a mountain deer. They're leaping from rocky crevice to rocky crevice, sure-footed as they're, they're on the precipice. And that's what God does for Habakkuk here. That's what he says in this poetic language. God makes him sure-footed in the precarious places of life. Again, the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust God? I've been reading uh, 2 Corinthians recently in my quiet times. And Paul begins by saying that God is the father of all compassion and the God of all comfort. Paul was saying that God can comfort those in great distress. He can give strength to those in great distress. God had strengthened Paul himself. Paul, when he said he, was, he despaired of life itself, he was strengthened by God. Not pretending that the situation wasn't there. They're the same as Habakkuk. He, he realised he was, he was at the point of, of despairing of life itself. 
And yet God gave him strength for that, gave him an ability to trust. Now Paul, who faced beatings and shipwrecks, broken relationship, who escaped certain death, and yet could still rejoice in God. Paul could say that we rejoice in the hope of glory. And more, we also rejoice in our sufferings, which ultimately lead to hope. You see, God gives strength, knowing the gospel gives strength from God. And you know, we can strengthen each other as we speak gospel words to each other. As we tell each other the gospel, reminding each other what God promises there. Reminding each other that there is an inheritance to come. Reminding each other of the great truths that God promises to us in his word. You see, if you're going to trust God, you need to know what he says. And so we can encourage each other by doing that. Now we come to Lighthouse thinking, how can I encourage somebody with the gospel? We visit somebody who's, who's sick in hospital. We think, how can I encourage them with the words of the gospel? We speak to somebody who's low in their faith. We think, how can I encourage them with the words of the gospel? The gospel is powerful. God will give us strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Well, before we come to discuss that a little bit more, let's pray together.